are, are called, but few are chosen. Uh, you 115 who are here are the chosen. You have been chosen by God to be at the Master's University. That's why you're here today, okay? And uh, things happen here, like, like last night and a lot more things like that to come. But a lot of other things happen here. You're going to hear things uh, here from the Word of God that you will not hear in any other school. Um, and I'm going to share just a couple of them with you as we begin. Before I have an opportunity to talk to you again, there will be an election in our country. And there's a lot of dialogue about it, a lot of talk. Next week we're going to have a, a summit on, uh, on the election. That's uh, week... Uh, no, that's next Wednesday, just about a week before the election itself. And people keep asking me um, who to vote for. It's really pretty simple. And I'll give you a couple of things that make it simple. Uh, it's not about the uh, morality of the candidate. We all understand that they fall short. It's about the function of the position. And I just want to give you a couple of perspectives. Perspective number one is that greed, greed is only checked in a capitalistic system. You hear socialists say, talk about Wall Street greed. That's not where greed flourishes. Greed flourishes in a socialistic system because the people at the top of the pile have no competition. So their greed is massive. In capitalism, your greed is mitigated because you have to serve and provide for other people. Capitalism is an other-centered system. It's a system of exchange. Let me give it to you simply. Capitalism says, I'll do something good for you if you do something good for me. I give you my money, you give me the shirt or whatever, or the house. That's a peaceful interaction. Socialism says, you give me something good or I'll do something bad to you. That's the difference. It wants to take your property. It wants to eliminate competition. It wants to fulfill all the greedy ambitions and desires of the people at the top. Just a perspective that you need to think about. The second perspective I want to give you is this, the difference between globalism and nationalism. When you hear somebody talk about globalism, and you're seeing it in Europe even today, the rubbing out of all borders, you're seeing the very thing that God judged at the Tower of Babel, a one-world system where evil is unmitigated and unchecked. God ordained nations in Genesis 10. God speaks to the nations, identifies the nations through the whole Old Testament, through the entire New Testament, even on the day of Pentecost. All kinds of people were gathered in Jerusalem from all kinds of nations. God ordained the scattering of people, the development of languages, cultures, because they act as checks and balances. That, that is why we have so much trouble in the Middle East right now, because America got involved in helping people revolt and in removing Middle Eastern leaders who, even though they were evil, were a check for each other, and now that check and balance is gone. You have this massive Islamic unification. But one third thing to think about. So you're looking for someone who is a capitalist and a, a nationalist, not a globalist who wants to build another Tower of Babel and get the world ready for Antichrist. But a third and more important thing to think about is this. In Ezekiel chapter 20, uh, there are a couple of verses that I would just point out to you that are very significant in light of the current situation. In verse 24, God says, They have not observed my ordinances. They have rejected my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were on the idols of their father. Their father. So this is God's indictment of Israel's anti-God rebellion. So he says this in verse 25, I gave them statutes, I gave them laws, 
that were not good and ordinances by which they could not live. What happens in a society that turns against God is God gives them bad laws. God gives them bad laws as a judgment, like the laws that allow homosexuality, same-sex marriage, the laws that disallow the Scripture, the Bible, God in the public square, the laws that don't allow a Christian to decide whether to bake a cake or not for somebody. These are laws that do harm. So when a culture rebels against God, God gives them laws that further harm them, that do not contribute to their welfare. But this is specifically defined in the next verse. I pronounce them unclean because of their gifts, meaning because of all that I gave them, all the, all the blessings of common grace. I pronounce them unclean in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire. Do you remember what that is? The worship of Moloch. And they would take their babies. To pacify Moloch, you take your baby and put your baby on the altar and, and incinerate your baby to death. They did that. They did that. They killed infants. So I gave them laws that literally were dangerous to them. I made them, he says in verse 26, desolate. What are those laws? You can look at it like this. You, you aborted your babies, so I made abortion legal. I allowed abortion to be made legal. You were killing your babies. You were rejecting me. I, I allowed abortion to be legal. This is a law of judgment. It's murder. Sixty million babies will be murdered this year. Women who abort babies, that's a law. You can have an abortion, but that's a law that is dangerous. Of the women who abort, they are four times more likely to die in the subsequent year than the rest of the population of women. They are seven times more likely to kill themselves. They are twice as likely to have cancer. They're 30% higher risk of medical complications. And 160% of them, uh, compared to the rest of the population, will be treated for psychiatric problems in the next 90 days. The list of physical complications and mental complications post-abortion is endless. This is a law that is dangerous. This is a provision that is dangerous. Homosexuality being tolerated is a provision that's dangerous. Same-sex marriage is a law that is dangerous if not deadly. God says, I give you the privilege of developing those laws as a form of judgment. And by the way, that same principle was repeated by Stephen in his sermon in Acts 7. You can see it in verses 40 to 42. So when you're looking at a candidate, ask yourself, who upholds individual responsibility? If you don't work, you don't eat. Who, who has the system of economics that mitigates greed? That's capitalism, free market, because I have to defer to you. I have to produce something that you want. I can't, I can't come to you and say, give me your money or I'll put you in jail. That's what socialism does. Ask yourself then, who is a globalist and who is a nationalist? Who sees the value of a nation, state? That, the effort to rub them out is universal across America by the socialist elite. And then ask yourself, who is a murderer of infants? Pretty obvious answer. Just to make it simple, you can't vote for the Democratic ticket because that's their platform. All those things are their platform. Socialism, globalism, and abortion. 
Regardless of what you think of the individual, there's more at stake. Uh, that might be a bit of a preview, a little depressing, I guess, but of the uh, summit next week. Now, let's look at the Word of God together, okay? Take your Bible, and I'm continuing the thoughts along this line. Uh, one of my favorite portions of Scripture is Isaiah 5 and 6. Uh, I thought this morning I would... Uh, Maybe spend a few minutes taking you through Isaiah 5 and 6. I know that's a, that's a long section. Totals up to about um, 43 verses, but um, we'll, we'll cover it rather rapidly. We, we start Isaiah 5. Now remember, Isaiah is warning about judgment. Isaiah is predicting the judgment that Ezekiel saw. And his fifth chapter is one of the most fascinating chapters in his amazing prophecy. It starts with a parable. And I'll just read it to you down through verse 6. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. What kind of a parable is this? It is an exquisite elegy. It is a plaintive weeping song. It is a dirge. It is a sad song. It is poetic in the Hebrew. It is a song a farmer sings about massive effort to create a fruit-bearing vineyard that turned out to produce nothing of value. And so, essentially, he tears it down, destroys it. What's he talking about? Well, he tells you in verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful or pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. This is a parable about Judah. Now go back into the parable just a little bit. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. When God planted Israel, He planted them in the land of milk and honey, the land of Canaan, some of the most fertile soil in the entire earth. And he dug all around. What does that mean? He dug all around to remove the stones. Well, it could refer to the, the dispossession of the Canaanites and all the other ites that were in the land when Israel came in and took the land. A great effort to prepare that for a flourishing people who would bring forth good fruit, dug all around. It could also refer to the moat, the protections. God protected Israel by giving them social laws that restricted their interaction with the pagans. They had different dietary laws, different clothing laws. They had different calendars. Everything was done to separate them from the pagan influences. And then he planted with the choicest vine. I think history would validate the fact that Jewish people are among the noblest of all the human stream. We are, there's only one race in the world, you need to understand that. There's only one race, that's the human race. There's some minor differences, but, but among the humans in the world, the Jews are an amazingly productive group. Choicest vine. And then it says he built a tower 
in the middle of it. What is that tower? Well, it well could be the, it's a protection. A tower was built so that people could uh, stand up at the top of the tower and make sure that animals and enemies didn't come because in those days you could destroy somebody by destroying their crop. So it was a protective tower and that may well be a reference to Jerusalem, the city at the very pinnacle of the land of Israel. And hewed out a wine vat where the grapes could be taken and crushed into wine. And the expectation with all that kind of preparation, uh, the best land, the best vine, the most protected setting, all that you need to see good grapes. Instead it was bu'ushim, sour berries. So the question is then asked of the Jewish people, what do you do with a vineyard like that? Well, well I, did, I couldn't do anything else. I, I, I found the choicest land. I protected it. I put the best vine. I did everything to insulate it. I put a tower so that it could have someone watch over it. I produced the wine vat to produce the wine, and all I got was sour berries, inedible. What should I do? When I expected it to produce good grapes, it produced bu'ushim. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Verse 5, I'm going to remove its hedge. That again, the hedge was built around it as a protection. I'm going to remove its hedge. It'll be consumed by the animals. I'll break down its wall. Another wall of protection shows you how protected the vine was. It'll become trampled ground by anybody and everybody meandering through, and it, I will lay it waste. It'll just become completely empty. I'm not going to prune it. I'm not going to hoe it. Briars and thorns will come up, and I'll charge the clouds so rain no rain on it. This is judgment from God pronounced on the house of Israel and the men of Judah. God looked for justice, but bloodshed. These are play on words. I looked for mishpah and only saw mishpah. I looked for tzedakah and saw only se'ekah. I, I, I didn't see what I had expected to see. What went wrong? From the parable, Pick it up in verse 8. Here are a series of sins that tell us why the judgment comes on Israel. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room, so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. This is grasping materialism. Israel was guilty of this. They were building great, fine houses, but they were going to be empty. They had lots of fields, but there were going to be famine conditions. Ten acres would yield only one small bath of wine. Just a number of, a hand, two hands full of gallons from ten acres. A homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain get one bushel of useful grain. That's famine conditions. I'm going to curse you by bringing famine on you for your grasping materialism. You'll produce a few gallons of wine, a few bushels of wheat, but that's not enough to survive. I'm going to judge you for your materialism. What is the idea of this materialism? They added house to house. This is, this is just unfettered greed. And these are the people at the top of the pile who are piling up their possessions so that they literally live isolated from everybody else in the middle of the land. The second sin comes in the second woe. I won't take more time with that. Uh, the second sin comes in the second woe. Verse 11, What are those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink? who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their parties are accompanied by lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and by wine. They do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of His hands. What is the work of His hands? The creation of the human being. They dissipate their bodies. They take no regard in the fact that God has made them. Uh, this is drunken pleasure-seeking. Drunken pleasure-seeking. They're mindless. Verse 13, they go into exile, which is what's going to come as a judgment for their lack of knowledge. 
Their honorable men are famished. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its throat, death, the grave, and opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into it. All the partiers are going to hell. The common man will be humbled, the man of importance abased, the eyes of the proud will be abased, the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. And then the lambs will graze as in their pasture, and strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. Drunken pleasure-seeking added to grasping materialism. But God will be vindicated because God will judge that, and He did. And He laid the whole nation waste, as you know, when they were hauled off into captivity. There's a third woe, finding the third characteristic sin of that society. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. In other words, the picture is you've got so much sin you can't even carry it on your own back. So you have to have a cart and you're hooked up to it like some kind of a mule and you're pulling around a wagon load of iniquity. You've got so much corruption in your life that's more than you can carry by yourself. You're dragging your iniquity around like a beast of burden. And while you're doing it, you're defying God. Verse 19, let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. If he doesn't like it, let's see him do something about it. This is mocking God. This is what you could call defiant sinfulness. Not just sinfulness, but God-defying sinfulness. Let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. Laughing in the face of God. If you don't like it, God, do something about it. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Such blasphemous mockery of Holy God. If you don't like it, let's see you do something about it. Grasping materialism, drunken pleasure-seeking. I read last week, 80% of the students at the University of Houston are into binge drinking. 80%. And they have developed something called drunkorexia. They take so many carbs in from alcohol that they purge, use laxatives, undereat, and overexercise to compensate for the carbs in the alcohol. There is a fourth sin. You will recognize this. Verse 20, we call this moral perversion. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is moral perversion. This is reversing everything. All of a sudden, what is truly good is illegal, and what is truly evil is made legal. Morality is turned upside down, turned on its head. So you have grasping materialism, drunken pleasure-seeking, defiant sinfulness, shaking its fist in the face of God, moral perversion. And then, of course, you have to have along with it arrogant conceit. And that's in verse 21. What are those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight? This is that kind of arrogant conceit that says we're the wise, we're the clever, We'll do it our way. All of this is aided and abetted by the final woe, corrupt leadership. Woe to those who are heroes. That's a word for leadership. In drinking wine, valiant men, another word for leaders in mixing strong drink. Leaders who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Unjust, corrupt leadership. What a litany in Israel. Grasping materialism, greed, drunken pleasure-seeking, dissolution of the body, parties, defiant sinfulness, shaking their fists in the face of God, moral perversion, twisting everything, turning morality on its head, arrogant conceit, a culture dominated by its own self-will, and to aid and abet it, the leaders make all of that part of the party platform. Elect us because we offer you moral perversion. 
we offer you, offer you defiant sinfulness. We offer our corruption. So you go from the parable to the penetration to the sins to the punishment. Look at the punishment in verse 24. Here comes the punishment. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against His people, and He has stretched out His hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets, for all His anger is not spent. Even after all that, His hand is still stretched out in judgment. And in the case of Israel, verse 26, he will lift up standard to a distant nation, a hostile army from Babylon. God's going to whistle for them to come. And no one in that army is going to be weary, verse 27, or stumble. None will slumber or sleep, nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Nothing's going to slow them down. Its arrows are sharp, its bows are bent, the hooves of its horses seem like flint, and its chariots wheels, chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness, and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. That's the Babylonian captivity. And it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds." They're going to stir up such dust that it'll seem like midnight as this roaring army comes in judgment. God pronounces judgment on Israel. Israel, you would think, is a protected covenant people. But even that covenant didn't protect Israel from God's wrath. America is not a covenant people. We don't have any promised protection. We don't have any promise of perpetuation. We don't have any promise that we're going to be around in the future like Israel is going to be around. And God hasn't changed His standards. If our society is marked by the very same sins, and it is, then why would we assume that we would be treated any differently than God treated His covenant people? As somebody said years ago, if God doesn't destroy America, He's going to have to apologize to Israel. And then He's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is the world we live in. It's a world that has gone down the same path that Israel went down. You say, well, that's, that's really amazing. No, it's not amazing. That's how every nation goes through all of human history. Acts 14, God allows all the nations to go their own way. There are only so many sins you can do. And the same cycle is the cycle of destruction for all nations, Romans 1. It involves immorality homosexuality, and a reprobate mind. And then comes the judgment. We are experiencing that judgment in America now. Because when that judgment falls, you have a sexual revolution, a homosexual revolution, and a reprobate mind. When that judgment falls, you start making laws that are dangerous, laws that kill people, laws that kill babies in the safest place, the womb, laws that kill young people. You make no-fault divorce laws, and a no-fault divorce law is one of the reasons the LBGTQ thing has flourished, because if I, if I look at marriage as just something that I feel I want to do, but if I don't feel like I like you anymore, I'm out. If, if that no-fault notion is enough to violate a covenant, then a covenant doesn't mean anything. Why is there a marriage covenant? There's a marriage covenant for the times you don't feel like you want to be married. That's why you have a covenant. You get past that. But if we make laws that you can have divorce over anything that doesn't really matter, you can kill your children in the womb, doesn't really matter. You have laws that are deadly laws, they are dangerous laws, they are not for the well-being of society, and the entire society begins to unravel and collapse. 
And then you have something like the legalizing of transgenderism. No such thing exists, by the way. I want you to know that. Um, if you're, in your own mind, thinking you're transgender, you are 19 times more likely to kill yourself than the rest of the population. That is a very dangerous law. To allow you to do that, you're 19 times more likely to kill yourself. To say nothing of the fact that you can't have a significant relationship with anybody. And in this country, look, if we lose the understanding of male and female, this culture is gone. There's no marriage. There's no children. There's no family. And that is the unit that makes a society civil. It's where we are. We're not waiting for the judgment of God. We're in the middle of it. And the judgment is the laws that we make that perpetuate the sin that we desire. Those are the dangerous laws that kill more people. But that's a judgment. So here's the question. I'll give you the answer. Here's the question. What kind of person is God looking for in this world? Right? You're here. What kind of person is He looking for? I say, well, um, <clears throat> maybe some really smart people? Mm, no. Most of the smart pe people profess to be wise, but they're actually fools. Um, you say, maybe some really gifted people? No. No, being gifted is overrated. Way overrated. Maybe, um, you know, really highly educated people who can figure this out? No. Because you can be educated to the max, but if you have no knowledge of God, you're, you're just an educated reprobate. You have a reprobate mind. You're no help. You can't solve anything because you can't think straight. What kind of person is God looking for? The answer is in chapter 6. One of the great chapters in this book or in any place in Scripture. Isaiah is distressed. Poor guy. I mean, if, if you were a preacher, you probably choose to be a preacher in a time when things were good, right? You don't want to live your whole life doing this, right? Calling down damnation on everybody. I mean, you know what happened to Jeremiah? He did it and they threw him in a pit and left him for dead. Oh, by the way, what happened to Isaiah? Sawed in half. Tough duty. So Isaiah does what I think um, you might do. I think he actually went to the temple to see if God was still there. Was, was God on His throne or had something happened? For sure, the Lord gave him a vision of His throne in the year of King Isaiah's death. That's important. You say, does that matter? Well, it does if your name is Isaiah. That's 740 B.C., and Isaiah has been on the throne for 52 years. 52 years he has been on the throne, and the illusion is, hey, wow, God's allowed this guy. Could you imagine having the same president for 52 years? I mean, you'd, you'd settled down. Uh, there was a certain kind of... Uh, I guess you could say military peace. There was a certain kind of economic prosperity. There was a kind of a superficial uh, religious observance. On the surface, it, it looked okay. And as long as Isaiah was alive, it was like God saying, hey, you guys are okay. Then God killed Isaiah. So Isaiah's thinking to himself, this, this is a very dire time. I need to know where God is. The nation is corrupt to the core. Judgment is coming from the massive hordes of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. 
Death is on the way. The escalating iniquity is leaving no promise for the future of our nation. And now, the one sort of token that things are okay, God killed, God executed him publicly. Isaiah needs to see God. And God gives him that vision. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Whoa, stop there. Isaiah might have said, Hallelujah. Because I might have thought that throne was vacant. And that God had gone somewhere else and somebody else was there. The way things are going here. But he says, I, I saw the Lord. And he was still on the throne. And Isaiah has a vision of the incomprehensibility of God. It's very much like the vision that Ezekiel had in chapter 1. And here we go from the punishment to the presence of God. He sees Him on the throne. That means He is still sovereign, still in charge. He is lofty and exalted. He has no equal. The train of His robe, which is emanating Shekinah glory, fills the temple. This is, an in, this is a view of the incomprehensibility of God. His Shekinah light fills the entire temple in this vision. This is God lifted high. I have to give you a footnote to this that you might not expect. In John chapter 12, verse 41, John writes, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in Him. Who's the Him here? Who's the Him? Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw Christ on the throne. You say, well, in Isaiah 6, he saw God. In John 12, John tells us it was Christ. This is perhaps the most elevated statement of the deity of Christ in the New Testament. Equaled only by John 1.14, we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So back to Isaiah 6. What kind of people is God looking for in a nation in crisis? People who have a vision of the divine sovereignty of God and Christ. It's not a time to take your eyes off the Lord, right? What happens in this kind of situation is you start looking at all that's wrong. You start dropping your eyes and looking at all the disastrous things. What you need to do is keep your focus on Him. Gaze at the glory of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and be changed into His image from one level of glory to the next. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on the one who is sovereign. I say this all the time. What happens politically in America has absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom of God doesn't advance it. It has all to do with the judgment of those outside the kingdom. The king is still on the throne. He is still high. He is still lifted up. He is still exalted. And by the way, those terms are also used of Christ in Isaiah 52 and 53. He sees Him in all His glory at the height. He can feel the heat of the enemies breathing down on the nation, but God is still on the throne. And I love this. A vision of God's incomprehensibility is followed by a vision of God's holiness. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he literally hovered like a celestial helicopter. He covered his face. 
reverence. He covered his feet, humility. With two, he moved service. What are these seraphim saying? One cried out to another in an antiphonal way back and forth and said, Holy, holy, holy. That's the trihagion, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The only attribute of God repeated three times because it's the essential attribute of God. It is His nature to be other than we are. And that's what holiness means. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So now you see a view of God as absolute sovereign on the throne. And then you see a view of God as infinitely and perfectly and in triune fashion, absolutely holy. And then the whole earth is full of His glory. He is essentially the source of all creation. He cannot be measured. His holiness can't be measured. His nature can't be measured. His glory can't be measured. The foundations, verse 4, of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. In the vision, it's starting to feel like Mount Sinai. Smoke and fire and fear. You just had a vision of the incomprehensibility of God, the absolute worship of God, the holiness of God, and standing in the very place where you're seeing the holiness of God, you have to face the reality of your own wretchedness. So the scene which is at first all glorious and wondrous becomes terrifying. The foundations of the thresholds begin to tremble. Fire and smoke. It's devastating. And Isaiah's response isn't this. He didn't say, hey, what a great experience. I saw the Lord. Doesn't take his deal on the road and go around advertising himself as the man who saw God. He's devastated. He says in verse 5, woe is me. He used that word woe repeatedly in chapter 5 as we read. And woe means damn or curse. He already talked about woes to fall, damnation, cursing, judgment to fall on the people for all those sins. Now he calls down judgment on his own head. What kind of people is God looking for in a world in crisis, a world under judgment? One, those who have a view of God's incomprehensible sovereignty. Those who have a view of God's perfect holiness. And those who understand their utter sinfulness. He's devastated. Woe is me, I am ruined. The, the Hebrew is I'm disintegrating. I'm, I'm literally crumbling to pieces. I'm being crushed. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I have a dirty mouth, he says. Whoa. That's quite a confession. Not only do I have a dirty mouth, but I live among a people of dirty mouths. Why are you saying that? Because I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and by comparison, we're all a bunch of dirty-hearted and consequently dirty-mouthed people. You say, wait a minute, Isaiah. This is a bad self-image. You're not going to be very useful. Why, why does he talk about his mouth? Because the mouth has the most facility to sin of any human faculty. Before you do things sinful, you say them. Probably a hundred more sins come out of your mouth than in your behavior. I mean, obviously it evidences the heart. But sin is most easily expressed from the mouth. He knows he's a sinner. So you say, look, Isaiah, uh, that's pretty serious to condemn yourself that way. Why are you doing that? Because I've just seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I saw Him. He saw me. I'm undone. That's the kind of person the Lord's looking for. Someone who has a view of the incomprehensibility of God 
the utter holiness of God as much as is possible for us to grasp and who sees the wretchedness of his own heart. Reminds me of what Paul said uh, when he said, I am the chief of what? Sinners. When he said, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. A wretched man that I am. What are you going to do with a guy who's the chief of sinners and who's wretched? Oh, just use him to be the apostle to the Gentile world and write 13 books of the New Testament. Say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that disqualification? No. Look, if God has to use perfect people, he can't use anybody. Because none of us is what we should be. Paul faced his sin and dealt with it. And God here deals with even Isaiah's. Down to verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it. Whoa! Just think about that at the next barbecue. Whoa! Take a hot coal with tongs off the fire and stick it in your mouth? That's a picture of atonement and purging, and it is always painful. Repentance is painful. This is, this is an altar symbolizing the altar of atonement. Atonement in a personal way applied to a confessing, penitent prophet. God isn't looking for protect, per, perfection. He's looking for people who confess their imperfection and seek cleansing. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. What kind of person is God looking for? Someone who has a a view of His incomprehensible sovereignty. Someone has a view of His marvelous and perfect holiness. Someone who sees his own sinfulness and someone who runs to repent and be purged. And then God finally speaks. God doesn't start speaking until verse 8. Earlier it was an angel. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. All right, now you're ready. And the Lord says... Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Trinitarian reference with the pronoun. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? By the way, how many people are in this vision? One. It's just Isaiah. So when the Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah is looking around. I don't really think he said... Here am I, send me. <laughs> this is a crushed guy with a burning mouth that needed to be cleansed. I think he probably thought something like, uh, I don't see anybody else. I'm here, you could send me. Hmm. And he said, go, tell this people. So are you that kind of person? Wonderful to be here in this school because you're going to learn the incomprehensibility of God. You're going to learn the holiness of God. You're going to learn about your own sinfulness. You're going to learn about atonement, purging, forgiveness. You're going to learn about being humbled before God. You're going to learn about willingness to serve Just the kind of person God's looking for. And by the way, whatever you do in in life, the only thing that matters is what lasts forever, right? So, God says to him, go. This is his commissioning. Go and tell this people. Oh, by the way, say this. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. What? I mean, at your ordination, when you're just, you've gone through all this trauma, and you're ready to be launched, and the Lord says, by the way, no one is going to listen to you or understand anything you're talking about. 
In fact, uh, you're going to be the one who renders the hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, return and be healed. What? You're going to go and you're going to be an agent that literally increases their judgment. This is going to be like 2 Corinthians 2. You're going to be a, an aroma of death unto death. Do you ever think about that? Literally, as, as a prophet of God, you're going to be God's judgment instrument. Because when you preach the true message and they reject it again and again, judgment is compounded. Hmm. God's looking for people who understand that they're not going to have a massive response. So, in verse 11, Isaiah asked the question I would ask, Lord, how long do I do that? Like, you know, maybe a week? A couple of weeks? No. No, just do it until all the cities are devastated without inhabitant, the houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. What? Spend my life talking to people who reject everything I say and keep doing it till no one's left? Yeah. Well, what is the point? And by the way, that also is quoted in John 12. What's the point? I love this. You keep doing it until verse 12, the Lord has removed men far away. The forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Why am I doing that? Finally, because of this promise. There will be a tenth portion. This is a very awkward Hebrew verse to translate, just give you the gist of it. There will be a tenth portion, a remnant. Like a stump remaining when a tree is felled. And that stump is the holy seed. God has His people. Like it says in the book of Acts, the Lord had many people in that city. They hadn't yet come to Him because they hadn't heard the gospel. There's a remnant, there's a tenth, there's a stump, there's a holy seed. And God will use you to reach them. That's the kind of people God's looking for. Those who have a view of His incomprehensibility, His holiness, their own sinfulness, and who understand that proclaiming Christ is going to alienate you from the vast majority of people, but God has a remnant, and He uses you to be His instrument to reach that holy seed. I know you want to be that kind of person, don't you? That's why you're here. Father, we are so grateful for the calling you've placed on our lives. It is a serious calling, but at the same time, its results do not depend on us. They depend on you. You're the one who gives life. You're the one who steps into the darkness of the human heart and says, let there be light. And you're the one who allows the glorious light of the gospel to shine. I pray for all who are here today. I, I pray, Lord, that you might from this group of people here throughout the years until Jesus comes, use them as instruments to gather many, many of your elect, your holy seed. That their lives might be filled with purpose and meaning and joy and fulfillment. And that we might one day gather around you in heaven and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Give us a vision of Yourself and Your glory, even that glory which shines so perfectly in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray in His name.